a number of years ago, uh, there was a political candidate. In fact, he became one of our vice presidents. But one of his quotes was, a brain is a terrible thing to waste. And he was taken to task uh, for misspeaking. What he meant to say was a mind is a terrible thing to waste. And he wasn't talking about the organ that resides in these skulls of ours. He was really talking about the intellect and the thought process of every human being. And so the poor guy really took a lot of abuse because he misquoted a quote that came from someone else a long time ago. Uh, but he's not talking about uh, the brain today. We're talking about the mind. In fact, if you were to do a study through the Apostle Paul's letters, you will see that he refers to the mind and teaches about our thought and our intellect some 44 times in 40 verses. And uh, so it is deep on his heart. In fact, when you read his epistles, he starts with the mind. He doesn't start with our emotions. And uh, the mind is a terrible thing to waste and that we need the protection of God in our mind. Uh, there's a story that comes out of World War I in 1916, I believe, the Battle of Jutland. It was a massive naval conflict between Great Britain and between Germany and the North Sea. And uh, in that uh, battle, uh, many, many lives were lost, many ships were lost. And the British admiral, one of the admirals, was uh, Lord David Be Beatty, and he commanded uh, part of that flotilla uh, in that uh, Battle of Jutland. And in that battle, the German ships and the British ships engaged one another with their long-range guns. And the Germans would lob these giant shells towards the British ships, and uh, they were blowing them to pieces. In fact, uh, the indefatigable, I practiced that all day yesterday. That was the name of that ship. It's got too many syllables. That's just an aside. But the indefatigable, uh, also uh, the lion, the Queen Mary, and uh, thousands of sailors lost their lives because these ships were hammered. In fact, the British lost twice as much, much tonnage as the Germans did and over twice as many lives were lost by the British in that Battle of Jutland. And to this day, military historians debate who was the victor. And uh, they did actually drive the German Navy back out of the shipping lanes, but who was really the victor? Well, one of the reasons the British suffered such great losses is that because their ships, though armored around the hull, still had wooden decks still had wooden decks in World War I, and so the Germans were able to lob giant shells which went right through the decks into the powder magazines, and they would blow these ships to pieces. And only after the British, after that battle, they started armoring not only the hulls of their battleships, but also the decks, and they would armor them all the way around. And that's only then that they stopped losing their ships to uh, enemy uh, armor, artillery. And, you know, effective armor is crucial, and this is what we've been studying in this study of Ephesians chapter 6. Uh, it's a crucial element in spiritual warfare. We in the West tend to ignore the reality of spiritual war warfare for the most part because, I said, as I said last week, we tend to be children of rationalism. If it doesn't make rational sense, then it cannot be true. And it seems like spiritual warfare, the battle between the angels of heaven and the demons of hell, seems so far from reality. And let the Bible is very clear. And in this passage, chapter 6 of Ephesians, the Apostle Paul is very clear, the reality of spiritual warfare. Remember, the letter to Ephesians is written to the church. 
we tend to take these uh, commands and these instructions individually, but remember each individual, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you are part of the universal church and you are part of a local church and you are part of a greater thing, bigger thing than you as an individual. And so these apply uh, not only to us as individuals, but to us as an expression of a local church here. And so we need to remember that if we leave anything unprotected, if we fail to appropriate the armor that God has given us, that he has uh, developed, the enemy will have a way to exploit those gaps in our armor, uh, those places that may per- perhaps are missing the protection that we need. And the Battle of Jutland, as real as that was, and the history books will attest to it, the battle rages on in spiritual warfare. Satan seeks to destroy you, seeks to destroy your family, and to thereby destroy a church, destroy a neighborhood. He is known as the destroyer. In fact, Jesus called him that at one place. Just to set the context, remember this letter to the church at Ephesus, which is given to us uh, today in our Bibles, uh, in chapters 1 through 3, talked about our wealth in Jesus Christ. If you're a believer in Christ, you have incredible wealth in him. And in chapters 4 and 5, our walk, in fact, the Apostle Paul uses the metaphor of walking as lifestyle as our life goes on. There are Uh, ramifications from our wealth. We have certain wealth, therefore there are ramifications in how we live out our position in Christ. And here in chapter 6, it seems to be the warfare is the focus. The warfare is the focus. And so wealth, walk, and warfare could be a summary of the letter of Ephesians. But we're commanded many, many times in this letter to walk or live out a lifestyle in a certain way. And when a Christian is living for the Lord Jesus Christ, how obvious is the target uh, for Satan? He will want to oppose everything about us. And in fact, in these verses that Bill read for us today, this is where we've been. We've been taking each piece of this armor of God and looking at it on each Sunday But in these verses, we see the devil described various ways. In verse 11, he is called the devil, which is diabolos in the Greek, which means the diabolical one. He is the accuser. In verse 12, there's a number. It's not just the Satan himself, but all of the demonic forces. He's talking about rulers, powers, world forces of this darkness, spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. So all of these are arrayed against God. And if we are followers of God, of the Lord Jesus Christ, they will be arrayed against us. And then in verse 16, we find here that he is called the evil one, which is a word that we get the word pornography from. And it's that same Greek word, but he is called the evil one. Dr. Jim Anderson wrote this about this spiritual warfare that goes on against Christians. He said, we fight against a formidable foe far stronger and much more cunning than we are. We fight not against flesh and blood, as it says there in verse 12. We cannot win the battle through outwitting our foe with human brain, nor can we win by overpowering our foe with human brawn. We need the whole armor of God. We need the whole armor of God. In fact, the Greek for the whole armor is panoply. You may have heard that word before. We need the panoply of God. That is the full or whole armor of God. And so how do we defend against this tactician of terror, this tactician of terror? Just a little bit of review here in verses 10 through 17. There are five commands to obey. These are verbs that are in the imperative form, which means they are a command. They're not just a suggestion. 
In verse 10, it tells us to be strong in the Lord, to be strong. And of course, we know from verse 10 and 11 that that strength does not come from our human resources, but it is God in us, the hope of glory. Because the Lord Jesus Christ tells us through the Apostle Paul in Corinthians that every believer is indwelt by the Holy Spirit of God. Elsewhere, he is called the restrainer of evil. I don't know if you've ever thought of yourself as one who is used by God to restrain evil, but that is the church in the world today. After Revelation chapter 3, we no longer see the church in the world, and the restrainer is taken out of the world, and literally all hell breaks loose if you read the book of Revelation. So we are to be strong in the Lord. That's the first command in verse 10. And uh, remember, he tells us to uh, put on the splendid protection of God, put on in verse 11a, to put on this spiritual armor. In other words, appropriate what God has provided us. And in verse 13a, take up the full protection of God. There's this aspect of we consciously and willingly avail ourselves to appropriate what God is providing. In verse 14, stand firm. Up until this point, we are to walk have a lifestyle in a certain way, and now it is to stand firm in the face of evil. And then today in verse 17, we are to take the protection of salvation, to take it. In fact, that word that's used there is not the same word that we find in verse 13, where it says to take up, even though the English is similar, it is not the same Greek word. And in the one in verse 17 is receive, really. It's used many, many times of t- receiving a resource that God has provided. So we are to obey those five commands, be strong, put on, take up, stand firm, receive, or take uh, the resources that God is providing. I was reading about an event that happened in 2004 uh, over in Kuwait. On December 8th of that year, uh, Secretary of Defense Donald Rumsfeld, do you remember him? And uh, he had come to Kuwait to deliver a pep talk to the troops there at a military base. And usually he was pretty unflappable and quick with an answer, but he was blindsided by a query from this soldier. As news cameras rolled away, Army Specialist Thomas Wilson of the 278th Regimental Combat Team asked Donald Rumsfeld, quoting him, why do we soldiers have to dig through the local landfills for pieces of scrap metal and compromise ballistic glass to armor up our vehicles? And uh, Specialist Wilson felt very vulnerable. He felt like his government was not providing him with the armor that was necessary to deal with the combat situations they were in and being sent in the battle without proper protection. You know, as Christians, we don't have that complaint uh, because God is equipping us. We don't have that to fear because he is giving us the very armor of God. This supreme commander gives us what we need for the spiritual battles that are arrayed before us. So it's up to us to appropriate them. That's why we have those five commands. And the six pieces of this protection, as we've been seeing, each Sunday we've taken a piece. We talked about the belt of truth. And remember, the Apostle Paul's using the metaphor or the picture of a Roman centurion all geared up for combat. And so he's using that, which was a very common sight in the Middle East of that day and in the the world of that day. And so he talked about the belt of truth. And from the belt of truth, everything else held together. 
and the, the sword and all, everything was hooked onto the belt of truth. It holds everything together, and it is foundational to the rest of the pieces of armor. If you do not believe in the truth, if you do not live in the truth, the rest of the pieces of armor are of no help to you in your walk of life. And so the belt of truth in verse 14, the second part of verse 14 is the, the breastplate of righteousness, or I like to call it the body armor. We have the belt and the body armor. It protects the heart, the center of our emotions. When you think of a physical uh, uh, breastplate of of protection, and it's talking about the righteousness we receive from the Lord Jesus Christ that's imputed to us, given to our account, and also it talks about the righteous life that we can live because of what Jesus has done, personal holiness and righteous living. Then the boots of peace or the gospel of peace gives us stability. It's talking about the gospel of peace. They're at peace with God, Romans 5.10, standing in his resources And then we talked about the shield of faith, and that is thwarting the attacks of Satan. And really, it is belief in what God will do, no matter what the circumstances look like. Each one of us live in a set of circumstances, some very pleasing and nice, others very adversarial and difficult. Every human being, the human experience is that of blessing and uh, trouble and, and adversity, isn't it? And so this shield of faith is what protects us. Do we really believe God in the midst of all that's happening to us? And today we're going to look at the helmet of salvation. Next week, the sword of the word of God. And we will look at those and complete that next week. Uh, but we're going to, today we're going to look in verse 17, just this one phrase where it tells us there to take the helmet of salvation. In other words, receive it, basically, is what that verb is telling us, that command. And we think of the helmet, and of course, Paul is using the Roman helmet. But I was reading about Thurman Thomas. Do you remember Thurman Thomas? He was a pro football player back in the 1990s. That's clear last century. And uh, he played in the Super Bowl. And in 1992, he was playing in the Super Bowl, and he missed. He was their star for the Buffalo Bills. And he was their star running back. And the first two plays of the game, he didn't have his helmet. He lost his helmet. He didn't get to go out on the field. Because he sat it, he put it on the ground, and somebody either took it or mislaid it. But anyway, he ran around looking for it, and so that 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 dogs him to this day. He is known as losing his helmet before the big game. And by the way, the Buffalo Bills didn't do very well in that game either. And so the question is: Is sometimes do we lay aside the helmet of salvation? How do we do that, and what does it mean? Uh, Well, because the Roman soldier's helmet was designed specifically to thwart the blows of swords and other implements of combat. In fact, one of the major uh, pieces of of weaponry in that day was a double-edged sword, which was long, three to four feet. Sometimes we see Roman soldiers with short swords for close combat, but this was the broad sword, the bigger one, and it was a two-edged sword. It had a massive handle so it could be gripped with both hands and swung both ways and deliver blows to the opponent's skull. Well, everybody knows that you can continue in the fight, in the combat, with an injured arm or an injured leg or all those things or a bad foot, but if you get hit in the head, you're done. We know that that is the center of life. To protect us from Satan's crushing blows, Paul tells us to take this helmet of salvation and he's saying, uh, he's not saying to people, oh, by the way, get saved. Remember, he's talking to people who already know Jesus Christ as their Savior. 
And unbelievers don't put on spiritual armor because they don't even, they're not even in the battle. Satan doesn't attack his own forces. And so God provides protection for our minds, our protection for our minds. And there's two critical areas that I think that God has in mind here, what he's telling us about. In 1 Thessalonians 5.8, Paul describes the helmet of salvation as the hope of salvation, the hope of salvation. And that implies that Satan's most fierce and powerful blows are directed at the believer's assurance and security. The believer's assurance and security. Therefore, Paul encourages us to have confidence, certainty in the salvation that we already possess. And it's tied to last week to faith, to belief in what Jesus is, who he says he is, and what he's going to complete. He knew that, Paul knows that if we doubt our security in Christ, he'll be, we will be rendered ineffective in the spiritual warfare. Just as a blow to the head renders one physical body incapable of defending oneself, so we are incapable if we are doubting the security and assurance that God gives us. So the first one is how to deter discouragement. All of us are subject to discouragement from time to time, some more than others. But life can be discouraging. And for a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, that discouragement can come. And sometimes it is spiritual warfare. And Satan is trying to influence our thinking, our intellect, to become discouraged. We should have the assurance that we are secure in Christ. If we don't, you don't have your helmet on. That's just bottom line here. Now, remember, there's two aspects to our salvation. One is the assurance of our salvation and the security of our salvation. Assurance is Godward. Security is manward. Security is determined by God. He declares it in his word, Romans chapter 8, the end of Romans chapter 8. And then we can be assured that what God says is true because his Holy Spirit indwells us. And he teaches us through his word what God has said. Now, there are those who want the security of someone else's salvation. And in fact, the whole lordship salvation movement is based on that. They want the security of your salvation. Well, that is not to be because I cannot have the security in anybody else's salvation. I can only be secure in my own because I know what I believe and I know what God says in his word about what I believe. Now, assurance, I can have relative assurance in other people's salvation. And it's based on what they say and how they live out their lives. And that's of external view, but it's basically an assurance that they can have before God. And so we need to deter or counteract this discouragement. Romans 8, 29 through 30 assures us that all whom God justifies, he sanctifies, and he glorifies. And we'll talk about that in a moment. No one gets lost in the process. The Gospel of John, if you are struggling with your assurance and your security in Jesus Christ and you are discouraged over it, you are up and down because one day, oh, I must be saved because I'm living right. The next day you're down in the dumps because, oh, I sinned and Satan is accusing you and you can't really be a Christian. Remember John chapter 6. John, the Gospel of John is a very good place to start with your assurance and security. In verses 37 through 40, listen to these words. These are Jesus' words, by the way. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will certainly not cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but to do the will of him who sent me. 
This is the will of him who sent me, that all that he has given me, I lose nothing but raise it up on the last day. Verse 40, for this is the will of my Father, that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in him will have eternal life, and I myself will raise him up on the last day. You lock in that phrase, everyone who beholds the Son and believes in him will have eternal life. It's not believe and be baptized. It's not repent and believe. It's not believe and go to church. It's not believe and give money. It's not believe and be a good guy. It's not believe and make Jesus Lord of your life. It is simply belief. I want to emphasize that. Emphasize that. So discouragement can come in, and that is Satan's tool. In fact, it has been said that all of the tools to try to destroy Christians have a handle of discouragement upon them. And that is the beginning place. And that can work its way into doubt, the second important place in your mind. Deterring discouragement and now dominating your doubt or controlling your doubt. Doubt can come in our lives in very many ways. And, you know, sometimes doubt is good. Skepticism is never good, but doubt is sometimes okay. You read through the Psalms and David had some doubts. And yet he always goes back to the character of God. But when there uh, doubt can come into our life in many ways, but perhaps it's a sin that comes into your life. And Satan basically hisses to you and says, surely you are not a Christian. Why would God save you anyway? You don't deserve his mercy. You're not good enough. How presumptuous to think that God could ever use you. Such doubts are common among Christians who focus on their performance rather than on God's power. Did you get that? Doubt often comes to the Christian who focuses on their own performance rather than focusing on the power of God. That is so key to this whole issue of doubt. All too often, we're quick to acknowledge God's power to save us, but slow to understand his power to keep us. He has promised to keep us. Uh, To complicate matters, many Christians believe they can lose their salvation And so they live in constant fear of falling away. Because how do you measure that? How do you measure losing your salvation? Is it one bad thought, one curse word, uh, one ignoring of a person in need? Where where is it? And plus in Scripture, it never tells you how to get re-saved. If you lose your salvation, you're lost. There's no hope. Why keep trying? But so too many Christians believe they can lose it, and they're in constant fear of that. Still others have never learned what the Scripture teaches about their security in Christ. They're so intent on trying to please Jesus Christ through their own efforts that they lose their sight of grace and drift into a subtle works righteousness mentality. That's a danger for us all because legalism... And works righteousness appeals to our flesh. Oh, if I do this, this, and this, I can measure it, and I must be a good guy. Galatians militates against that. The Apostle Paul destroys that argument in the book of Galatians. But your performance doesn't determine your standing in Christ. Your standing in Christ determines how you live out your life. And that's why the Apostle Paul starts with our wealth in chapters 1 through 3. He says, that's your standing. That's your position. That's the power of God in your life now. Live this way because we want to do this eternal thank you. In fact, a good friend of mine here in town, another pastor, says these words. He says, what can you do to make God love you less or what can you do to make God love you more? 
And of course, it's a rhetorical question. It's nothing because he sees us in Christ. Christ has done it all. And he loves you and he's caring for you and he's keeping you in the power of his grace and mercy. Good works are a result of getting saved, according to Ephesians 2.10, but they don't save us and they don't keep us saved. That is God's work. Listen to Jude, that little letter. You know, there's only, what, 25 verses in Jude? That's the kind I would have written, you know, because it's short. You know, Paul wrote Romans. I like the way Jude writes here. Jude said at the end of that little letter, Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to make you stand in the presence of his glory, blameless with great joy, to the only God our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time, now, and forevermore. Amen and amen. Do you notice that? He is able to keep you. He is able to keep you. And that's what the the Bible does and declares throughout So we can counteract discouragement, control our doubt, because it's based on what God's word says. But if we don't counteract it and control it, then that will lead to despair. You ever been in despair where the whole world is hopeless? My whole experience is hopeless. My circumstance is hopeless. Satan attacks us with that two-edged sword of discouragement and doubt, but it doesn't stop there. He tries to take us beyond that into this despair, robbing us of any hope that God tells us that we have. An illustration of this is the great prophet Elijah, the great prophet of Elijah, a man of God. Remember back in 1 Kings chapter 18, the highlight of his ministry came on top of Mount Carmel, where he slew 450 pagan prophets of Baal. Uh, And yet immediately after this great victory, he fled for his life because Queen Jezebel threatened him and was going to kill him in 1 Kings 19, 1 through 3. So what did he do? He had this great spiritual victory for God, but he ran. He ran into the wilderness of Beersheba. He sat down under a juniper tree. And not only was he discouraged and doubting, but he was in great despair because listen to his words in verse 4. It is enough now, O Lord. Take my life, for I am no better than my father's. I have been very zealous for the Lord God of hosts, for the Son of Israel have forsaken your covenant, torn down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. I alone am left, and they seek to take my life to take it away. Boy, talk about despair. I don't know if you've ever been there where just all hope seems gone because the situation, the circumstance, the adversity seems hopeless. Remember God's words to Elijah? He just whispered to him. He was still in control. He said, there are still 7,000 faithful people. You're not alone. (laughs) need to remember we're part of something bigger than ourselves. Elijah had, in effect, removed his uh, helmet of salvation and received a near-fatal blow to his mind, to his thinking, and his confidence, his certainty of God's blessing in his life. And there may be times of doubt, discouragement, despair in our lives about God's faithfulness, but we need to go back and renew our minds and remember what God is doing. In fact, he tells us in Romans to renew our minds. We need him to be renewed. That's why we get together, and that's why we sit under the teaching of God's word. That's why we read the Bibles on our own. That's why we listen to other Bible preachers, and we want to renew our minds in the truth because we have short memories. We forget that God is good. 
John 10, 27 through 28, Jesus again says, My sheep hear my voice. I know them. And this is more than just an intellectual knowledge. This is intimate knowledge of you personally. I know them, and they follow me. And I give eternal life to them, and they will never perish, and no one will ever snatch them out of my hand. Define despair. Can challenging the despair that will come into our lives. And so this helmet of salvation, I need to remind you that the Apostle Paul is talking to believers already here. And so he's not talking about initial salvation, about what is called justification, being declared righteous because of what Jesus Christ has done. For me, I was 28 years old, and that's when God opened my eyes to John 3.16, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. At that moment when I believed in Jesus Christ, I was declared righteous. Christ's righteousness was imputed to me, and that's called justification because he took my place on the cross. And so that is past tense. I was saved from the penalty of sin. You can read all three tenses of salvation in Titus chapter 2, verses 11 through 13. But justifications, for some of us, it was a long time ago. For others, it wasn't so long ago. But that is past tense. I was saved from the penalty of sin. And then we look forward to heaven. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, we have a future and a hope. This life is not all there is. Thank the Lord that we have a future and a hope, that we go on forever. Remember that as created beings, we had a beginning point. We are not eternal, but we are everlasting. And we had a beginning point, just like Satan and the demons had a beginning point. They were created beings. Uh, but we have a beginning point, but we shall live forever in heaven because of what Jesus Christ has done. And I believe, contrary to much teaching today about hell, that uh, unbelievers, people who end up in hell by their own choice, had a beginning, and they have life everlasting, but it is not a good ever life everlasting, but it is in hell. And so present or future tense is, I will be saved from the very presence of sin. That's called glorification. So we have back here justification, declared righteous, uh, saved from the penalty of sin, glorification when I get to heaven, I will be saved from the very presence of sin. Can you imagine that? No sin in heaven, none at all. In fact, the only sign that there was sin is the nail prints in Jesus' hands and his side and his feet. That's the only sign that there was sin. We are going to be uh, saved from the very presence of sin. But this middle part between justification and glorification is called sanctification, being set apart unto God's purposes And that is the present tense. As I look out, I think everybody's breathing. And so you are in this present tense situation where we are being saved from the very power of sin. This is called progressive sanctification. This is spiritual growth. And there are volumes and volumes of books that are read on how to grow spiritually. And the Bible is declaring to us that we can grow spiritually. Charles Hodge, a commentator from another time, wrote that, That which adorns and protects the Christian, which enables him to hold up his head with confidence and joy is the fact that he is saved and that we might add that he knows that his salvation will be perfected in the end. If you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, you were justified and the promise is you will be glorified. You know, we will see Christ face to face. And in this part, he is saving us from the very power of sin. These 
pieces of armor, uh, these garments of glory, as one person described them, are really God's. They're not ours, not our manufacture. We just receive them. We appropriate them. And really, they are sourced in Isaiah chapter 59, verse 17, uh, where everything seems to be falling apart in Israel and the world. And Isaiah writes this about God. He put on righteousness like a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on his head. And he put on the garments of vengeance for clothing and wrapped himself with zeal as a mantle. We are able to stand in certainty, confidence, and if you will, certitude, because we are enabled by God and his word through the power of his spirit to recognize that we will finally be delivered. It may not seem like it in this life, but there is deliverance coming, and we can commit ourselves in the midst of these difficulties, adversities in the battle. And so today, if you find yourself discouraged, full of doubt, perhaps even despair, you go back to the truth of who God and what he says he is. That is belief. It's saying, I believe Jesus for his words, even though the whole world around me seems to contradict what Jesus says. John 5, 24 is the perfect verse for you. If you're in doubt, discouragement, and despair today, listen to the action words in John 5, 24. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and does not come into judgment, but has passed out of death into life. Remember the action words here? Have you heard his word? Do you believe in Jesus? You have, if you do, you have eternal life. It's a present tense. And you do not come into judgment, but you have passed out of death into life. 1 Thessalonians 5, 8 through 10. But since we are of the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and as a helmet, the hope, of salvation. That is for the believer. We have the hope of salvation, and that helps us in our belief. Well, this morning we are celebrating, essentially observing the Lord's table. If the men would come up, who are going to help serve. And today, uh, as we do, usually the first Sunday of each month, we observe the Lord's table. It's one of the ordinances commanded by the Lord Jesus Christ, and the other one being believer baptism. And in this <clears throat> passage, central passage is found in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. And the, the historical event occurred back in Luke chapter 22 when Jesus and the disciples, when Jesus was on earth, uh, met with the disciples for the Passover meal. And since Jesus was the fulfillment of the Passover, which was observed every year uh, for thousands of years from the time they left Egypt in the Exodus uh, Jesus is the fulfillment, the longing of Israel, the longing of all people for a Savior. And Jesus took that Passover meal and applied new meaning or fulfilled meaning uh, to the elements. And he specifically took the bread and the cup. And the Apostle Paul was taught this by the Lord Jesus Christ. And he says uh, in chapter 11 of 1 Corinthians, verse 23, I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, meaning the church, that the Lord Jesus in the night in which he's betrayed took bread. Now, this observance, this is not uh, conveying grace or conveying, uh, in a sense, any salva salvation, salvation uh, but it is a memorial for Christians to remember what Jesus Christ has done for us. In fact, he tells us twice in this passage, remember, remember. And so it's good to reflect back on your own testimony, your own experience, and to remember what Jesus Christ has done for you and his faithfulness in the past and to reflect upon he will not cease being faithful in the present 
or in the future. He is going to fulfill all of his promises to us. And so Jesus prayed for this, for the bread and then the cup, and then they distributed them. And today, as we observe together, as we remember together, we're unified as a expression of the body of Christ, or the church, as it's called. And so I'm going to ask uh, John Fitz to give thanks for the bread. 